Uh, today we are looking at 1 Samuel, and if you're just joining us, we're reviewing the, the major character characters and events. So if you have a Bible, it's page 225 in the Blue Pew Bible, and we're skipping the, the re- traditional reading because we have a lot of content to cover, and we'll just read along as we go. But we, we've, we're covering these ma- main uh, figures in the book of 1 Samuel to get us to uh, our next series, which is in 2 Samuel, which will begin in a few weeks. And uh, this little series here to get us uh, from the on-ramp into the, the main traffic of 2 Samuel has felt a little bit like the Greatest Hits album. So I've just gone back over those sermons and just picked off pieces that I thought were the most important pieces to listen to. And, you know, even when you have a Greatest Hits album of your, of your, uh, your favorite band, you have a greatest hit. You're not on the album. There's one that you really like the best. And this is the greatest hit of the greatest hits right here. Uh, Jonathan. Jonathan, he's my favorite character in this book. And I want to look at his life from three different angles. First, Jonathan's courage and curiosity. Courage and curiosity. Second, his friendship with David. And then I want us to close by just thinking about Jonathan and God's mysterious providence. So first of all, Jonathan's courage and curiosity. You look with me in chapter 14. Jonathan is the oldest son of the current king, King Saul. In chapter 14, he's a grown man. He's been out to wars. He's a soldier in an, ar- in an army. He's part of Saul's team. And in this chapter, it opens with a, a dramatic scene. There's two armies facing each other. They're just about ready to go to war. And it's the classic setup of the Israelites and the Philistines. This is the David and Goliath kind of moment here, but it's with two different armies on the Philistine side. And, and what divides these two, two armies is a pretty steep ravine. So geographically, they're separated and they're maneuvering to get ready for battle. In the Philistines, there's 30,000 chariots. Just think about 30,000 chariots have moved across the plains into this one location, 6,000 horsemen, and according to the scriptures, troops like sand on the seashore. So that's one, one army. And then the Israelites' army, 600 men. The only two people who have a sword are Saul, the king, and Jonathan. Nobody else has any kind of thing like a sword or a weapon. They have clubs or sticks or some kind of farming tool. And then Saul, they have Saul. He's the leader, and he's hiding in a cave. This doesn't sound like a good situation, does it? This immense number of people and power against 600 with no real power, and the leader himself is is hiding in a cave. Saul is frozen in fear. He thinks, if I just hide in this cave, by the time I come out, my problems will all magically disappear. Have you ever done that? Some Something that feels too big, and you, you're so afraid you can't even tackle it, so you, you kind of hide, you withdraw, and you just hope, oh, maybe if I just don't do anything this week, when I come back out, boom, it magically disappears. You know what? I've never had them magically disappear yet. They're all still waiting on me when I come outside of the cave. 
And so this situation looks terrible, and if you were making a movie right here, you would cue the Mission Impossible music. Like you'd say, okay, something's going to happen. God's going to move in some way. And that movement comes from Jonathan and his friend, who doesn't have a name, he just has a title, the armor bearer. Let's read verse 1. On one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But, notice this, he did not tell his father. I wonder why. I mean, Jonathan's hiding in a cave somewhere. Everybody's hiding in a cave. And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, Hey, we, let's... let's Let's go out and meet the enemy. Don't tell my dad. Wonder why. I mean, we don't know for sure, but Saul is stuck in a cave of fear. And his fear is freezing everyone else in that same cave. And he's afraid, perhaps, that if he tells his dad, his dad's going to convince him, hey, son, you can't go out. you got to stay here. So he says, I can't even have this conversation with my dad because I'll get stuck in his cave of fear. And many times kids get stuck in the caves their parents make. And so Jonathan detaches himself from his father. He goes out with his armor bearer. They walk to the edge of this ravine. And they look out. And then in chapter 14, verse 6 is a key verse. Jonathan says to this young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What a great verse. They're standing there at the edge of this ravine. This younger man, probably a teenager, is just carrying the armor of the, the one man who has a sword, Jonathan, and they're standing here at the edge, and they can see the, the thousands of horses and men and equipment. Hey, let's go to the other side. Let's take these people on. I mean, perhaps it may be that the Lord will be with us. Such a, such a moment of courage and curiosity, and I, I love it. He crawls out of the cave of fear. He has the courage to say, I'm going to go out there and whatever this thing is that's in front of us that seems insurmountable, I'm just going to head into it. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know nothing good is happening here. So God is going to just help me move into this fear. And for many of us on our prayer cards, this might be what you say. Hey, I'm stuck in a, I've been stuck in a cave of fear. Maybe for a year. You could have been stuck in a cave for 20 years. And this is the year that you're going to say, I don't know what God may do, but I'm not going to stay in this cave anymore. I'm, I'm going to move out. And so he moves out with great courage. And notice, he moves out with curiosity. This is perhaps my most favorite part. And this is what you want to underline in your Bible. It just says either it may be or perhaps, perhaps God will decide to bring about a great victory. See, Jonathan isn't positive. He has courage, but yet he's, he understands the Lord's really in charge. And one commentator, I think, gets it really right on when he says this. Many think saying perhaps cuts the nerve of faith. You hear that? I mean, if you say perhaps, then you're, you're not really faithful. You're sort of hedging your bets. 
He goes on to say, they say if faith is faith, it must always be certain, dogmatic, absolutely positive. Faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He confesses the power of God. See, God can do anything he wants, yet he retains the freedom of God. Real faith doesn't dictate to God as if the Lord is its errand boy. You hear that? He he says, I know God can do something. I hope God's going to do something, but I can't guarantee God's going to do something. I don't know what God's ways are and what God's providence is. I feel like he's led me to this place and and maybe he's going to lead me into a great battle and victory. Maybe I'm going to die in the charge and somehow God's going to rescue him from some other way. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And we want to be careful how we pray. We want to pray like Jonathan, this great faith and great humility coupled together. He's willing to come out of the cave. He's willing to put his life on the line. But he's humble enough to know that he can't force God to act. Jonathan floats this idea to his armor bearer. Now, what would you say? I mean, you're 18. You got a life ahead of you. You got a girlfriend back in Jerusalem. I don't know what, what you have. And you're standing there. And it's just you, you're, you're carrying a few things, and you got this one guy who's got a sword. That's it. I'd be like, dude, I mean, I'll cheer you on, but I don't know if I'm going across the ravine with you. I mean, this is crazy. Maybe, maybe he thinks I'm supposed to speak wisdom into this guy's life. And so he's standing there, and this, this is such a, a great moment. Verse 7, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. And behold, I'm with you heart and soul. I mean, you want to kiss this guy on the lips. I mean, he he takes what little wind he has and blows it into the sails of Jonathan. And to say, hey, I, I think you're with God and I'm with you. And I'm just going to try to be behind you. And I'm going to try to push you forward. And if, and if we go down, we go down together. I'm with you heart and soul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you all the way. I hope you have a friend like this. Hope you have a spouse like this. Hope you have a parent like this. That, that at, at crucial moments, they stand next to you, and when you're maybe a little bit nervous, maybe you're standing there and you're feeling like, I'm the one who has to face this fear. You've got somebody next to you who's, who's blowing this encouraging wind into your sails to say, let's do this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going I'm to go together. And then Jonathan and his armor bearer, they take their first few steps of faith. And in verse 15, the Lord made the earth quake. Now, I always want the earth to quake before I take my first few steps. Do you not? Do you not? I mean, that's the way I'm wired. God, if you're in it, you make things happen, then I'll step forward. But that's not the way God's wired. He's like, no, I'm, I'm ready, but I need you to step forward. Then the earth is going to quake. And all these things that you're so afraid of, they go into a panic. And unbelievably, Saul crawls out of his cave to see, hey, something's happening out here. 
And he gathers all of his men, and he finds out, hey, Jonathan's going out. Let's all join with him. And a whole group of men come out, and they, they win the battle that day. It took one person to step out to get everyone else's fear unthawed. And again, maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe your, your step out as a high school or a college student in a, in a place that's difficult to, to say you really believe. There's so many people who want somebody to do that, but they're so afraid themselves. But if you could be the one, we could rally around you. And maybe that's where God has you planted here today. Verse 23, chapter 14. So the Lord, the Lord saved Israel that day. Saul didn't do it. Jonathan didn't do it. The armor bearer didn't do it. They all participated, but really it was the Lord. So just a couple of points of application here on this first point. Until Jesus returns, there's still many battles to be fought. And he's still looking for partners. Second Chronicles for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The eyes of the Lord are still ranging today in Wilmington. There's great battles to be fought and things to step forward and fears that you may face. And he's looking for people to partner with, to be friends with, to, to, to be encouraging to, to strengthen. And so you might want to ask if you're that in that place today. Partners that share the courage and curiosity. Not, not people who, who, who demand that God do something, but people who step forward and say, you know, maybe the earth is going to quake here. And then the armor bearer, maybe you say, well, I'm, not, I'm just not that courageous. I'm not the first person. Okay, be the armor bearer. Be the second person. Find somebody who's doing something and say, I just don't have the talent or skills or whatever to be the leader, to, to step out. But there's somebody who's going God's way. I can get in behind him or her or them, and I can be an encouragement. I can stay with them. I can blow the winds of encouragement in this person's sail, and maybe you can be a great armor bearer. That's just as important to Jonathan as, as Jonathan's leadership. Second thing we want to see here about Jonathan that I really love I'm going to say this so many times during the sermon because I really love everything about this sermon and Jonathan, Jonathan's friendship with David. Now turn with me to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is a uh, pivotal chapter. It's where David defeats Goliath, and we all know that story. We'll talk a little bit about more about it next week. But at the very end of the chapter, look at this very fascinating few verses, starting with verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, this is to go out against Goliath, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, so Saul, the king, and the commander, they stayed back. They sent out little 18-year-old David. He says to Abner, as your soul lives, O king, I mean, who is this man? And Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, notice this, with the head of Goliath in his hand. 
So the battle is raging. David's just cut off the head of Goliath. He's got it in his hand. And Abner comes up and says, hey, Saul wants to know who you are. And David carries the head back to the tent with Saul in it. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem. The king from Bethlehem. It's a little shadow of the king that's going to eventually be from Bethlehem himself. Now, who else is beside David here? Chapter 18, it's Saul. Jonathan's standing there, David's standing there, and Saul's standing there. And they're all standing there, and Saul, Jonathan's standing there. He's already had a great victory back in chapter 14. Remember, him against thousands. And he's the oldest son of Saul. He's the one who's in line for the king. Uh, at this point, Jonathan's probably 48, and David is 18. So how's Jonathan going to react here? Is he going to be jealous? Is he going to be bitter? Is he going to be angry that somehow this young man is coming in and, and kind of taking over some, some glory that might come to Jonathan? Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David speaking to Saul, the soul, notice this, 18, verse 1, of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took him that day, and, and I'm sorry, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself, very important verse, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David, his armor, and even his sword. Jonathan's becoming David's armor bearer. I'm carrying the armor, but I'm really carrying it for you. And I'm going to take all this off and give it to you because you're really the king. Little shadow of Christ again. Once you make Christ the king, you have to strip off your armor. You have to take off your sword. All the things you've been using to propel yourself to get noticed, those things are nothing anymore. You take those things off and say, Jesus, those things are all yours. If you want to give them back to me or use them in some way, great. But now you're the king. You're the one out front. You're the one in the spotlight. You're the king of kings. And so this great friendship gets forged right at this critical moment and then my question, like on every great relationship, is it going to last under pressure? I mean, you fall in love and you don't have a lot of pressure. You get married, you have a mortgage, you have three kids, you lose your job, pressure. And it's easy on the honeymoon to like each other, but when pressure comes, real pressure, what will happen? Chapter 20, we find out. Verse 1 then David fled. David uh, finds out that uh, Saul wants to kill him, so he has to live in the desert. And he comes to Jonathan, and he says to Jonathan, what have I done? What's my guilt? I mean, what have I done wrong? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, and Jonathan says back to David, 
Far from it. You shall not die, David. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. What you're saying, David, isn't true. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. See, David is saying, I think Saul is going around you, Jonathan. But as truly as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'm going to do. See, you're saying my own father is against you and my own father's tricking me. David, I'm for you. It's another way of de- detaching himself from his dad's bad plan. And they hatch a little scheme. David and Jonathan are supposed to eat the family meal together with Saul. And if somebody's gone, there may be a reason that somebody's gone. But over a couple of nights, nobody moves without being, gone, without being noticed. And so David says, hey, if, if I'm gone for a couple of nights and your dad reacts favorably to me being gone, then I guess your dad's okay with me. But if he doesn't react favorably, which he doesn't, chapter 20, verse 27. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. They're sitting at the family meal. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, well, David had to go down to Bethlehem. Let me go for my clan holds a sacrifice in the city and... May I find favor in your eyes? It goes on. And so he hasn't come to the king's table. Then Saul, verse 30, his anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. This is a cuss word in Hebrew. I do not know. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Again, these are the sharpest words. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at his own son to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Well, I guess so. I mean, I'm glad they wrote that in, but I think we could have figured that out, right? So here's the test. You're going to go against your dad or are you going to go with king? It's a, tough, it's a tough test. This is the oldest son. This is the one who's going to get all the power. This is the person who's going to get the position. This is the one who's going to get all the worldly acclimates that are due him. If he gives this up right now... He may end up with nothing. But he follows David. He knows David is the real king. And see, there may be a few people here that understand this test. It's not me. But you understand you're in a family, and your family thinks you're a Jesus freak, a religious nut. Oh, you're one of those churchgoers. And they don't, maybe they don't hurl a spear at you. Let's hope not, but... They, they throw little verbal things your way to try to knock you off course. And here, Jonathan, he's going to stay with the king. He's such a, a great friend. And Jonathan, then in verse chapter 23, this is the last 
time we see Jonathan and, and David together. Jonathan warns David. David ends up running around in the wilderness. And David is at a particularly low point in chapter 23, verse 15. David saw, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness. He's not just in the wilderness geographically. He's in the wilderness emotionally. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose. Oh, what a great moment. And went to David. And to strengthen his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king. And I love this last sentence. And I shall be next to you. Just, again, he's being the armor bearer. David, I know it looks impossible. But I've, I've come out of my seat to come find you in the wilderness. I'm telling you what you know is true. You're going to be the king. That's what God has already determined. It is going to happen. And here's my dream, David, that when you become king, I get to stand right next to you. That energizes David to keep moving forward. Such a, a great moment. And again, when we think about these friendships, hope you have a friend like this. I hope you are a friend like this. Probably the greatest friendship movie is Lord of the Rings. Now, you have your own friendship movie, I know, but this really is the greatest one, even if you have another one. And the greatest friend, there are lots of friendships, but Frodo and Sam are the two. Frodo's the main character, and uh, he's going to go on a very dangerous journey. And Sam, his sort of bumbling friend, wants to go with him. And Frodo says this at one point in the book, it would be the death of you, Sam. If you came with me. It would be the death of you. If you came with me. And I cannot bear that. I am going to Mordor. That's the mountain of doom. See if you come with me. We're too good of a friends. Because I know it's going to be the death of you. If you come with me. So I, I can't bear that. Sam such a great friend. Oh I know that well enough Mr. Frodo. Of course you are, and I'm coming with you. Such a great moment. See, it might be the death of me to go on your journey, but I'm going to go. I'm going to make sure, Frodo, you get all the way home, even if it's the death of me. Now, whether Tolkien was thinking about this or not, who's he pointing to? Jesus, as our friend, comes next to us and says, Paul... Even if it's the death of me, I'm going to see you get home. That's the gospel. And it does mean the death of him in order for me to get home. So again, what a, what a fantastic friendship that David and Jonathan have. And you, you are called to walk a difficult journey. Some of our journeys are more difficult than others, but there will be the places of doom that you have to conquer and you can't take that journey alone and I hope you have somebody who's coming in to strengthen your hand 
when your hand's about ready to slip, they have enough grip to hold your hand and hold on to Jesus until you get your grip back. Andy Stanley says this, particularly great quote for high school and college students. Your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. Your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. So choose good friends. Choose Jonathan's. Choose Sam. Choose these people who are taking their hands and putting them on your hands and saying, I'm going to help you hold on to Jesus, even if it's the death of me. And if there's no other place you're supposed to see this in a life, you're supposed to see it as a husband loves their wife. Because what does Paul say? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. A husband, when he comes up here and they get married, is saying, even if it's the death of me, I'm going to see that you get home. That's the role of every Every husband. So Jonathan is a man of great courage and curiosity. He's a a man of great friendship. And he has this dream that one day, David, it's all going to be over. And we're going to be standing together in victory. And you're going to be the king. And I'm going to be right at your side. But you read on and that's not what happens. Chapter 31. Back with the Philistines. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa, verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Don't you hate it when you're watching a movie and your favorite character dies in the end? And you, you, you kind of dreamed along with them that, hey, it's hard right now, but I know in the movies it all to- always turns out right. I mean, this is so frustrating to me. Why does Jonathan have to die? I mean, what, what's the value? What's the purpose? I mean, he's not trying to take over David. He's saying, I'm going to get you to be home. I'm going to get you to be the king. I'm going to stand next to you. I don't, see, I don't personally see any downside to that ending. But it doesn't work out that way. And my question is why? Why is that? Do you know why? I don't, I don't know. That's my answer to this question. I don't know why. Maybe Jonathan answers it for us back in chapter 14. Perhaps the Lord will work this way. But I can't be sure how God is going to work. But in John chapter 5, when Jesus comes to a series of pools where many lame people are, Jesus picks out one man and heals him that day. Why? Why that one man? Why not everybody right then? In Acts chapter 12, Peter, James, and John, who make up this inner circle, they were given special occasions to see Jesus so they could really be sure as they launch out the church that that they know who Jesus is. And in Acts 12, James and Peter are arrested for preaching the gospel and an angel of the Lord came and rescues Peter miraculously from the jail. What happens to James? 
he gets beheaded. Why? I don't see any downside of James living. Why does Peter get an angel and James doesn't get an angel? Yeah, I don't know why. 1968, a helicopter pilot, Morgan L. Phillips. He walks out of his house. He has a 35-year-old wife, four children, all under 10. He never walks back in. That was my dad. He died in a helicopter crash in 1968. Everyone else in the helicopter walked away without a scratch. Why? (laughs) I mean, what's the downside of my dad living? He's got a wife. He's got four kids. I I don't know the answer to that question. But there's something that you and I as followers of God are going to have to live with, and that's the mystery of God's providence. It's a hard hard thing to wrestle down. I mean, Jonathan, it's all removed from us, but there's going to be a place that's not removed from your soul. And then you say, I don't see any downside, Lord, for this to happen. Why is this happening to me? I don't get it. And you're just going to have to be faithful at that point. And you're going to need friends when you start losing your grip at that point who can hold on for two. Providence, the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way of the Lord of ruling the world. That's the sort of technical definition. The better definition comes from Corey Ten Boom. Spent three months in solitary confinement, ten months in a German concentration camp, and she made it out of her life, but her, her dearest sister died there, as did the rest of her family. And this is what she writes. My life is but a weaving between God, my God, and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. There's going to be some some dark threads that get woven into the canvas. And you're going to need a friend. You're going to need a friend like Jesus. You're going to need a physical friend like Jonathan to hold on to you while your grip is slipping. And in those dark times, you're going to have to muster up by the power of the Holy Spirit to to walk out courageously. And sometimes you walk out and face the fear and it all goes away. And sometimes you get crushed. And we don't know why sometimes. But we have to trust so much here to process. I wish we could like break up into small groups right now and talk. Wouldn't that be great? But you, you are, you're a small group. You can have lunch with somebody. You can talk at home. Hey, what, what here was the thing that was the voice of the Lord for you today? I hope you'll have that discussion with somebody today. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a wonderful and challenging life Jonathan has. And I pray, Lord, that as we, we look at this life, we see, we see how he still trusts all the way through. Pray that we would be that kind of friend to other people. We would have those kinds of friends in our life when, when, 
when you choose a dark color to weave into our lives that we wouldn't fall away, we wouldn't be stuck in a cave of fear, that we would have courage, we, we would have curiosity, trusting in your ways, even when we're left asking why, we can say, but I trust God. It's my hope and prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.